Sean Pinner is a former British soldier and Ukrainian Marine. He's written an extraordinary first-hand account of the war in Ukraine, his capture, imprisonment and torture by the Russian invaders. Sean was a retired and decorated British soldier living peacefully in Mariupol with his Ukrainian family. But the full-scale war began, and after fighting alongside Ukrainian army colleagues, he found himself imprisoned in Russian-occupied Ukraine and embarking on an unexpected and unimaginable fight for survival. After the horrors of frontline fighting, Sean had to survive his capture by Russian soldiers and his removal to a black site, an off-grid FSB prison operating outside of all human rights conventions, where he was subjected to a campaign of torture by Putin's secret police. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is now also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So please do like and subscribe, share the channel with your friends to help new people find our incredible speakers. Sean, I'm delighted to uh, welcome you to the channel. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, we had a we had a bit of a bit of a warm up chat before this, and this I think is going to be an incredibly uh, insightful, also moving conversation and incredibly important at this time to keep Ukraine in the headlines isn't it yeah for sure yeah it's taken a bit of a uh since Gaza and Israel it's taken a bit of a back seat really um so it's my job now to really since my exchange be able to keep promoting Ukraine um where I've lived here since 2018 and, and keep pushing that uh false narratives that that Putin keeps pushing to counteract that on social media, I've written a book, obviously, as you, as you alluded to. We raise money for charity, uh, and I'm more in a humanitarian role now. But yeah, we just pushed that Ukraine, so it's not pushed off the news completely. And this, this, this is clearly a strategy of Putin. Whether or not Russia was involved in the detailed planning uh, of the events in the Middle East, uh, that is at this point really impossible to to say. However, they have leveraged that crisis extensively to pour petrol on the flames. And there must be a worry that, given that seems to have been so successful in uh, taking uh, airtime off Ukraine, would you be surprised to see other conflagrations, other uh, terroristic acts occurring uh, where uh, you know Russia may be uh, either directly involved or inciting those for the for the same purpose, really, to to try and deflect from their failures in Ukraine. Obviously, yeah. Um, my, I can only really talk about my time living in Mariupol before the Russian invasion. Uh, I was a part of the military. Uh, I was married to Ukrainian. I've lived there for a significant amount of years before the full-scale invasion. It was my fourth tour on the front line. So I'd, every year prior to the invasion, we had that Russia would would indeed invade. Uh, the difference last year was that it went from 150, 180, then to 200,000, and then 200,000, And then we were watching the vehicles come in with the Zeds. And, and then what became apparent was a lot of the media was based in, in Mariupol, moved to Dnipro. Uh, and then even my wife and most Ukrainians at the time were saying, yeah, it's not going to happen. It always sorts itself out. And unfortunately, for five years, we'd always had that Russia were going to invade. Russia were going to invade. Unfortunately, last year they did. Um, and it caught Ukraine on the hop uh, at that particular time. Um, and, you know, you, you can see what's happening now. Going back to your question, you can see what's happening now with 
with Gaza, uh, in Gaza with Israel and Hamas and uh, Russia's uh, embracing of Hamas. And, uh, you know, for me, that's that's just Russia. It's it, it's what they do. They're clearly making moves to uh, into Ukraine, want to deflect deflect the, the 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 interest in Ukraine now onto Gaza and Israel, so they can push the agenda in Ukraine uh, because they're bombing everything. I mean, they're for one thing. You know, I go on about the ethnic cleansing. You know, the the the, the Volva Belova who, who who said that they've taken seven hundred thousand children into into custody and recently, you know, the figures here officially are 20,000. They haven't moved, but it still goes on. They're still making advancements. They're still taking the children. So, you know, those kids are then put into re-education centers where they're trying to erase the culture of Ukraine. For me, that's that's ethnic cleansing. And, and I'd seen this in Bosnia in the early 90s, you know, exactly the same situation. Um, they're taking over areas, flooding the areas with Russians. When I was in Mariupol, um, I've, there were there were Ukrainians wanting to get out of fighting and were told they wouldn't be allowed to go back to Mariupol for three years. So, you know, and they were flooding the area with Chechens and Russians now because they kindly took me to the location after I was captured. Uh, about a month after I was captured, I was taken into Mariupol and was told that this was the devastation I'd caused uh, and it was my problem. The fact that Russia had superior superior air superiority uh, and uh, were able to just bomb anything they wanted to. It didn't matter whether you were Ukrainian or Russian. They were just, it was going the way of Grozny. It was just, they were bombing everything. Um, so, you know, there's nothing out of the realms that Russia won't do to take back Ukraine and possibly upset Transnistria in Moldova, push on Moldova, push in more into Georgia. If Ukraine falls, that's where it's going to go, in my view. And so you've served, I believe, in Northern Ireland and Bosnia. And I'm going to come to the sort of comparisons between the Ukraine war in a minute. But also Kosovo is another flashpoint, which Russia has really tried very hard to uh, to, to spark that up, hasn't it? Uh, and it now looks like it's getting closer to that kicking off as well. Now, Russia's involvement there is far, far clearer. Um, its support for Serbia, its corruption of uh, the Serbian civil society, penetration of the police and military is starting to be documented uh, in quite a bit of detail. But uh, with your direct experiences there, is, is that another area you have deep concern for? Well, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Bosnia. I was really young at the time. Uh, I was quite 19 years old, really, in my first, but it was my first experience of war. Uh, you know, to go to places like Vitez and Gornivakuf and Mostar uh, and see the devastation, you know, the size of North London just completely obliterated is, uh, was quite an eye opener. Uh, and the talks of the ethnic cleansing that was going on there at Srebrenica. And, and, you know, I go back to to what was happening in Mario, uh, which I describe in my book as just the, the, the complete the complete bombing of everything, carpet bombing everything, uh, under the guise of narratives, uh, for example, the denazifying of Ukraine. You know, I lived in Mario. It just wasn't like that. Most of my friends are Russian-speaking Ukrainians. I learned Russian because I lived in Mariupol prior to, to um, the invasion. 
So the first language I picked up was Russian. My Ukrainian is really bad, you know. Uh, and my wife's always you must learn Ukrainian. And I was like, I know, but we lived in Mariupol for, for four years, so I have to learn a new language. So that narratives that he keeps pushing are just being uh, debunked, uh, but he still keeps pushing them. Uh, you know, denazify anybody that doesn't believe in that Russian system or the Russian way of life is a Nazi. Yet Russia has a far bigger problem with far right than Ukraine. Um, and they're using far right paramilitary groups to invade Ukraine. So it just doesn't, it never rang true with me. Uh, not to mention that Mariupol was my home and I was defending the community and my family. The narratives were just rubbish. So really, um, when I was given the opportunity to, to pull back from the, the front lines, it, it was a no-brainer for me. I was just, uh, you know, I, I probably didn't realise at the time I was the tip of the spear because your, your news input and everything is blocked and blacked out. So, so you don't realise, I didn't realise till six or seven days later how probably for part of it in the shit I was at the time, you know, or how, you know, at the tip of the spear I was at the time. So, you know, Russia constantly pushes these narratives. And really, if you take all the chaff and all the, the, the crap surrounding the invasion of Ukraine, it's a land grab. That's all it is. Putin wants the Soviet Union back. He wanted the corridor between Mariupol and Odessa. Uh, and he's fallen short of quite short of that, you know, in the two years of fighting hasn't actually taken even Donbass. So, you know, Ukraine has still lost a lot of ground. It's also gained back 50 percent of what it's originally lost. So, you know, for me, it was uh, a no brainer. Um, very proud of what what I did uh, and the decision I made today. Uh, I think you've got to have a long time living with yourself, really. Uh, so. You know, for me, it was it was about a decision about honour and, and my community um, and defending that. And, and Russia will just continue with the false narratives and the big disinformation campaign on, on the Internet. Um, they had a year prepping for that, year pushing those narratives out. If you go back and look on social media, they were pushing that, pushing that, pushing that. Uh, so, you know, they were thinking about this a year in advance. They, you know, you don't just go in and invade a country overnight. They were considerably... Uh, uh, you know, decided that they were going to go into Ukraine, but that was done six, seven months before. So any of those late talks to Mac Macron went over to Putin, Zelensky was saying, look, for the sake of, you know, joining NATO, we'll, we won't join NATO, you know, uh, for the sake of, you know, we don't want you to invade. And it was already decided it was coming in. This is it. And that that is conveniently ignored in a lot of the propaganda as well. Um the genocidal rhetoric. So you speak Russian, of course, and that's a that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you are able to understand not just the propaganda materials, um, you would have been able to understand the language of your captors. Um they, I mean, did they know you spoke Russian? Did you speak Russian with them? Did that change how they interacted with you in any way? Did it make it worse, better, or or not change anything at all? It was a tool at the time uh, when I was captured. They didn't really push me on that agenda. Uh, why would an English guy know Russian? As far as the, the, the sort of ground level troops were, I was a mercenary, um, you know, and, and never really pushed me on that. Uh, and I didn't want to tell them how much I knew at the time. So for me, it was about keeping that tool for me. Um, it certainly helped me 
I'm not fluent speaking and I'm only just starting to read it after four or five years, but I know enough words and enough phrases and, and I can pick out, um, you know, uh, phrases and, and, and when people speak, I know what's going on. Uh, but, you know, when I spoke to someone actually uh, in the prison from Moscow, I was just, I was gone. It's it just a completely different dialect. I couldn't really understand that, that very harsh uh, dialect. So the only way I'd sort of describe it to people is that the snaps when the gypsies talk and, they, and I was just I was just uh, lost with that. But I speak Sujik, which is a, a form of uh, if you ask a Russian when I was in prison and they did ask me later on, they said it's bad grammar Russian um, because it's a mixture of Ukrainian and Russian. For me, I learned Sujik because I lived in Mariupol. but I didn't even know what Sujik was when I was learning learning uh, Russian and also I didn't know what were Ukrainian words and what were Russian words at the time so I just copied people and listened like a parrot and uh, and ended up uh, being able to communicate in the trenches and when you do your first talk uh, you're talking Ruzglish with people who guys that had never even spoke English before uh, and by the end of the tour you've got guys that never spoke English before walking up to you saying please sit down would you like chicken for dinner you know it, it's kind of like Kind of like that. And in his trial and error, I mean, you know, and, and uh, being married to my wife, uh, Larissa, you know, there's only so many, so many times you can say you're so beautiful when you speak to me and get angry a bit in Russian before you have to start learning the language, really. So well, um, there's some synonyms but, yeah. for that, haven't you? Yeah, Maybe some poetry as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly helped me. Um, I got in an argument with uh, one of the judges at the trial because uh, she just oh, ears picked up when I started speaking Russian and she got very angry with me. Uh, oh, you do understand Russian. And that was probably the really the first time that um, in about June, I was captured in April 13th and about June really was where I went on the map for, for understanding a bit of Russian. But that gave me a tool in prison as well because it put me a higher rung above a lot of the other guys. You know, I was with NGOs that didn't speak a lick of Russian. Uh, I was speaking with uh, other military guys at Western Captured who um, didn't speak any Russian. or And also, most Ukrainians could speak a bit of Russian. Um, I've not met many that can't. Uh, and in prison, I was able to talk to other prisoners and other captives. Uh, and then I became a translator for the guards. I became a translator for the people. You then be become a use to, to the guards. So they, they, they don't give you such a hard time because they need you to make their life easier. And I was quite surprised how many of the, the prison guards didn't speak a word of English, you know, uh, maybe one or two, and that's it. So it certainly benefited me learning the language. And I always, when I teach NATO troops now, because now I, I teach NATO countries, um, various departments who put in the training uh, packages for, for the military. Uh, I don't only talk about my time captured because I was seer trained, but I also um, talk about, the culture in Ukraine, the culture in Russia. Uh, and I've sort of moved into that area. And now I go to Denmark, Sweden, just got back from Canada, Norway. And I talk to these these uh, countries about being at war as well, you know, not in a conflict, going back to a patrol base and coming out from a patrol base and going back to it. I talk about living in trenches, how being in a trench, you live off the land uh, as well as build your fighting position because the logistics are very bad. You can't, you know, guarantee that you're going to get MREs. Uh, I saw very few MREs when I was on the front line. So meals ready to eat. So, so, um, so uh, I, I don't really, I talk about a lot of things, not just my capture, but 
living and fighting in Ukraine on the front lines. And this is this is fascinating. I mean, definitely want to dive into your experience under under captivity. But the impression you get uh, when you speak to military people, strategists, etc. Do you is it concerning for you that that uh, in many ways, you know, the West has not fought a large scale war like this really since something like sort of Vietnam, North Korea, you know, an incredibly brutal, large scale war with the amount of, you know, mechanized armor, machinery, equipment, logistics that's required. Um, wars that have been fought more recently tend to be quite sort of at a distance, technological, over relatively quickly. Are we prepared? Are we tooled up? Do we have the equipment and the know-how really if it was to come to a direct confrontation with Russia? Uh, I think we have the technical inability and the know-how, whether we're ready or not, to a different argument in my view. I've, I've been lucky enough to travel now this last year talking to different militaries. Um, and from what I've seen, there's still a blasé attitude uh, to, to it. Uh, I mean, it's not just what you're looking at about equipment and infantry and big amounts of people fighting on the front lines, but you're talking about espionage and you're talking about cyber wars and you're talking about, you know, can I trust a person in the country I'm working with? One of the, one of the very big things I, I talk about now is when I was in captivity, uh, one of the Western prisoners I was in with uh, came into the cell after he'd just been interrogated, really, really, hyped up and worried and I said what what happened and he said they just showed me a picture of my parents in the UK and they took it from a moving car while they were walking the dog now where'd you go with that are you going to talk down a guy in prison that isn't worried about his parents but then on the bigger picture there's active service units Russian sympathizers and talking to militaries around the world about that um about you know, having some security on your social media. And I talk about the things I did wrong. You know, it's all well and good. I think they do very well. Uh, the, the NATO will do very well with the the, the combined arms and, and what they're, how they're preparing should Russia overstep the mark and start attacking NATO countries. I think they will do very well. But the cyber wars and the personal security, my God, I still think, uh, you know, these NATO countries, European countries are still blasé. That one country put me in a hotel full of high-ranking officers. And I, I talked to them afterwards about it. When you realise that if this was Ukraine, this place would be blown up tomorrow. You know, and if I know about it, everybody else is going to, including the village knows about it. So, you know, there is this blasé attitude. Uh, and the army doesn't, tells you not to set patterns, but it's the worst at it, um, and in my view. And, you know, even when I was in prisons, you know, you can, Confirm that by listening for the guard changes that are rigorously at the same time every day in any army in the entire world. You know, eight o'clock in the day, the guard changes over. It's done that every day. So, so you know, certainly my military background helped me when I was in captivity and understanding the military for nine years because I, I spent nine years fighting Russians or learning how to fight Russians. Um, so, so, so you know, I know how good NATO is, uh, but there are some elements that they really strike me as as blase and our british forces are, are severely undermanned uh compared you know from what i've seen in ukraine very very undermanned i mean what we've got 70,000 80,000 active service service guys i mean they're talking half a million army here you know all right you can rely on trident but really nobody's 
looking at reservists and thinking if it all goes pear-shaped who have we got you know maybe they are maybe they are i don't know uh but i certainly don't get that um you know feeling when i go and talk to to some countries some countries like poland are making inroads into you know defense and up in their budgets considerably and you can see that uh and some nato countries uh but you know when i go back to england it's a bit of a seems a bit of a letdown at the moment well, that was that was the uh, the 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 first sort of uh, I guess shock impression that I got was landing in um, in Zeszow, uh Airport in Poland and seeing Patriot missile batteries lining the runway, and then you think like, okay, well, they're, yeah, they're they're taking it quite seriously. Um, For sure, yeah. And, well, we were uh, talking about uh, yeah. off air just before. Sorry, we were just talking yeah. about off air about how I've had to move home. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and when I've gone out, my wife had got an apartment in Dnipro, uh, who, who was very proud. And she's done so well from, from me being in captivity, holding down a job, moving two cats, finding a new home. You know, she'd done an amazing job uh, dealing with the media and, and the hype because I was I was captured. Uh, and she was very proud of this. But we were stuck right near the bridge that crosses the Dnipro River. Uh, and we have, we've just had to move because, one, uh, the medical centre rattled the windows and that you know, I got a picture of a, a mushroom cloud the other side of the river from my front room, and I was thinking, oh, that's a bit close. Um, and then the, the apartment blocks in January, uh, which was high profile, um, that was maybe 700 metres down the road uh, on the same street we lived at. Um, and then uh, while we were in bed one night, uh, you know, we heard a Russian missile coming down the river, and I was just thinking, you know, as it was coming past, and, and uh, I said, did you hear that? And my wife's awake. She went, yeah. So that's it. We're moving. Um, so we've moved into quite a rural area, but you have to be serious about this because Russians uh, really don't care what they hit. Um, and, you know, I don't doubt they're hitting, trying to hit military targets, but they're not really bothered if they hit a civilian building or, or anything else. Uh, and, you know, Kherson's a, a testament to that. They're just firing into the village and into the civilian areas. It, it doesn't matter. So you have to be serious about this. Part of what I do with the talk is talking about this uh, drones, the use of drones. How many drones? I mean, on the front lines, the technology when I when the evasion just went up, it wasn't DPR and separatists anymore. You had fast moving drones, wing t- drones, Lancet drones. You had Shahid drones. You had different recon drones, and the recon drones were flying ten feet into our compound and and just looking through windows, trying to find to see what see what uh, see what was about. So. You know, I talked to, to to armies about that too, and, and you, you don't realise that I was on the uh, on my position, elevated on an embankment um, in Ilachar Steelworks, and I looked round, and my friend says, "Look, look, look!" And there's a drone, a Russian drone, just came into the compound, ten feet above the ground, was looking in through doors and windows. And I mean, when I joined the army, we didn't even have mobile phones when I joined. The army. So, you know, these technical advances. Um, How do you deal with that? You know, um, how do you deal with all these uh, drones now? Uh, you know, small amounts of money taking out million dollar equipment. It's it's a new facet for me, and and, uh, and you know, modern day armies and NATO armies have got to deal with it. And let's turn to that uh, period just before you're captured. Then, um, Mariupol. I mean, first of all, it's difficult to get out of there. I've spoken to a lot of refugees um, from Mariupol, Dnipro, and and around. Um, and Kharkiv, who are in the UK. And there are absolutely harrowing stories of people 
getting out of the city, many of whom, as you say, didn't think it was going to sort of kick off in the way it did. And then when it did, a lot thought they would be safer by staying put. But of course, there was no safe place. I mean, a lot of those people who are on the move were targeted as as well. So your family managed to get out, managed to get out safely. Um, and you're stuck some, there. some are still there, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, so I won't go too much into detail. But yeah, the older, my wife's side of my family and uh, the older, they're very old, so they couldn't get out. So they're still there. That, that That's, I mean, that's incredibly tough as well. We know that uh, um, the cruelty uh, that uh, and, and the randomness of the violence. Um, we also hear that unless you you know renounce everything ukrainian and even accept russian passports then you're now potentially being denied uh, access to to medical care uh yeah. so it's absolutely horrific to to hear that but you're there you're fighting not just in a in you know a land somewhere far away you're fighting in your hometown for streets you're familiar with landmarks um your memories in that place and here are the russians erasing it physically Obviously, you're only fighting for a couple of months before you're captured. But what was the sort of intensity of that like? Um, does anything in your experience in Northern Ireland and Bosnia prepare you for that? Well, like I said, it, it was my fourth tour. and We were actually deployed December the 12th, 2021. So we were there three months before the full-scale invasion. Uh, I'd fought in Novolugansk. I'd fought in... Um, Pesky, uh, and I'd fought in Pavlopol the year before, and I was a commander the year before. So it wasn't new to me. Uh, I'd been um, promoted to section commander within the Ukrainian military, which was unheard of. I was the first Western to command a position in 2021, which really was um, quite new to the Ukrainian military. Even the politicians from Rada came down to the position to see the English guy managing the position, which, which was like... They, they didn't really understand. Uh, and my commanding officer said, yeah, he's fine. Um, you know, and he's doing really well. Uh, so, and then I became the first re really to pass all, all aspects of parachuting with the Marines. So I wasn't immersed. I was there committed to the military. I'd been out there for five years. So I did nine jumps, four of them combat jumps with all your gear. Um, and then I passed the berry test as well. So all those things really uh, challenged that war tourist uh, and the Ukrainians are very good at spotting those sorts of guys now. Um, so, so it took me a year to really integrate, a year and a half to integrate to, to, to go through all those tests that the boys were going through. Uh, even though I had my military accreditations from the British Army, they still put me through my marksman in uh, Desenar in Kiev, uh, maybe go through and get certified as a Ukrainian Marine rather than just take, take my word for it, which I was very happy to do. Uh, but I was doing it with the boys. So you, you become integrated uh, and they become your friends and you're not there as a boy. And when, when I married Larissa and learned a language, all the doors really opened up for me here and they became home. And I think the nature of the world now is that people find homes in the most unlikeliest places and, and probably where they're not born. It, it's normal now. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, for, for, for to get that mercenary brand was was quite upsetting for me because they'd had Russia had had my contracts we were told quite early doors that they were supplied to Russia who decided to ignore it who then when they uh brought the Americans to the prison when they captured them it was quite clear they weren't captured even in Donbass they were bringing 
all Westerners to this this facility. Um, and, and going with this same narrative that they're mercenaries, uh, MI6, SAS. And when I was interrogated, that's what, what happened really, is most of the interrogations hadn't moved on from my survival, escape, resisted evade training 30 years before. It was still very much uh, the same playbook. Um, so when I when it was quite easy for me to then slip back in and try and remember from my courses 30 years before what I needed to do. Don't shit with your mates, delay information. If you're going to make a cover story, get it close to the truth as you can. I didn't have one when I went in, but the Russians manufactured one for me. So all those that experience when I was captured as well, I found it in prison that I was, you know, the only one that had any training. Uh, where he was caught with two NGOs, a civilian, American civilian, uh, guys that had been in the army but not gone into depth as much as myself because I'd I'd been um, working with my recon unit in in my battalion. Uh, I'd done overt and covert surveillance counterterrorism operations in Northern Ireland for three years, and I was um, working with COP covert operations platoon. Uh, and then I had my Bosnia. I went twice to to Bosnia, part of two four air mobile. Um, where I was then went to America to do my my SEER training and my conduct after capture training uh, as part of my role with 24 Air Mobile. Um, so in, even in prison, I couldn't talk about what I'd done to my colleagues in prison because one, they would interrogate the guys in your cell with you to try and get information about you. So it was a no-no to even really discuss what I'd done in the military before and my role in Ukraine with with my colleagues in prison. So it did it did give me a help. And, and obviously I learned in the culture. I'd seen that war. Uh, my first tour was, was my first trip to Pesky was very illuminating in um, Pesky in um, in 2018 because it was my first experience of really a tank round hitting hitting you. Um, and that velocity and that short time span it's not like a mortar artillery i would say is is um you know bearable if you know it's coming in and you're getting down to cover it's not nice but generally you're just you know you're praying to the the gods you get through it but when you hit a tank round it, it's so instantaneous you hear boom and it hits the hits the ground in front of you with such force um and i remember that always uh enough that it, it killed a few of my colleagues uh, in uh, in Novelagansk. So um, that, and then my first experience of grad uh, in the invasion, that I'd never been graded before, and I referred to it in the book as Phil Collins. You know, it comes in, you can hear it shoot off in the distance. If you're lucky to hear it shoot off. At night, it's easier to track because if you can see the, 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 the burners on the rockets, then it's either going left or right. If you just hear the noise, it's coming for you. Um, so you can't see those burners. And when it comes in, it, it, it's like the drumbeat of Phil Collins. You're just shouting grad, you get into your dried out river, uh, dried out well that I was in and just wait. And it just comes in. And if you have two cassettes firing, it's even more, um, more uh, volatile. Uh, and it's just shrapnel wigging around everywhere. So you, you, you really get used to the inoculation uh, and uh, my my boss was sort of saying, "This is your first grad." And yeah, he said, "Man, this we've got to keep doing this grad CrossFit every day." He kept saying, um, "You know, we've got to get 
15 times a day, it'll be grad, essentially calls grad, and then you're into the underground cellar or, or dry, dried up well or somewhere where you can get some serious cover and just wait for this grad to come in. But yeah, I mean, inoculation is a big part of what I talk about as well. Um, the inoculation suit, uh, it was my first time where I hadn't had the air superiority. You know, we were now Taliban. We were now the, the guys in sandals. Um, so when Russia had had a uh, full air superiority, all we had was a few Soviet Eglers that weren't doing the job. You know, the pilot would throw on his afterburner uh, and he was gone. Uh, throw out some chaff, he was gone. Uh, we hit one out, one plane in a whole seven weeks while I was there and we saw it spin out into the Azov Sea. I think the pilot must have been eating his packed lunch or something. Or, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was it was very, it was very uh, to watch. We had had eight years to prepare uh, for the invasion. So when we didn't have any food from the early onset and the, the rockets weren't doing the job with the planes, I remember talking to uh, Texas Richard Kemp saying, "We, you know, he's saying, what do you need? What's going on? What's happening? And Colonel Richard Kemp was, a, was my former CEO and uh, now on the media, the Times, the Telegraph, he writes for, for former commander of Afghan forces. And I just said, we need man pads. Uh, you know, we're just getting smashed. Um, so we were hiding our BTR in garages to disguise the thermal, breaking into garage garages on the way back through from the front lines. Um, things like that to reduce the risk to the soldiers. But yeah, I mean, nothing can prepare you for that. Uh, it took me six or seven days to really get used to it. And it's strange how quick you really do get used to it. Um, you know, once you get inoculated very quickly about rockets and the noise of the battlefield, um, it, it, and we had good guys on the radio warning us of planes coming in or, you know, artillery or, you know, and that was constant all the way through. That's how we lasted really seven weeks uh, encircled and, and trying to defend Mariupol. And for those, uh, for instance, who find themselves at the latter stages of the war here in Bakhmut and Avdivka, um, Solidar and places like that, they're subject to another terrifying Russian phenomenon, which is the so-called human meat wave attack. Now, I think everyone is now familiar with the sheer callousness uh, with which uh, Russians treat their conscripts, with which, of course, they treat also those who are drafted from uh, Donbass. You know, Russian-speaking Ukrainians are, by all accounts, treated with absolute contempt and suspicion. Um what must it be like to be experiencing that where essentially there are wave upon wave people coming at you um and as as a soldier there you're just sort of firing maybe for hours or days on end um that must be not just physically but also psychologically very wearing it is uh we 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 had uh, that in mariupol uh the, the, the degree of training for Russian troops was varied. Uh, the guys coming in on the Azov, Azov, Co uh, Azov Sea uh, and into the port and coming off, off the coast generally were a better standard of troops. Uh, and you hear the stories from my colleagues who talk about guys that didn't seem to, they had rifles that didn't make noises, was one, was one guy that, that said. And the standard just kept coming. Uh, but they were very well trained. Uh, compared to DPR forces that were attacking my segment of Ilocha, didn't didn't have the basic knowledge of infantry skills. Um, 
two weeks in, we lost uh, one guy, Ivanov, uh, because they tried to breach our defences um, and we got in a firefight with them and there was about eight guys. Uh, and we had uh, the, we were guarding the main H20 route in from Donetsk to Mariupol. And parallel in that was a railway track. And in the middle was a strip wood. There wasn't any other way to approach us, really, other than this strip wood. So, so they came in with eight guys, got whacked. Uh, we let them get 30 metres. The radios tell us again that there's two van loads of guys coming now. They come down the strip wood, maybe six or 700 metres down this stripwood from an area which we can't hit, which is behind a berm. Um, but they come down again. We whack them when they get 30 metres. And then they come back with two or three more loads. Of it. And you're just thinking, this is just crazy. They've got no baseline support, no no um, mortars, no artillery cover. They're just pumping people into these positions and just getting whacked. And then they're just retreating back, injured and damaged, uh, killed and... And then coming back in, I mean, it's it becomes a turkey shoot. What really scared me then was was they stopped doing that and then brought in the mortars. I mean, it's it was so. Uh, but even the mortars were badly trained. Uh, I, I, I talked to one podcast and said they were quite content on firing mortars into our embankment in front of our position. I thought this is going to cut us to shreds. That it's over. Um, but they were quite content of bombing the same position, you know, for five hours. You know, and uh, change it, and, and just the rounds were coming into this one spot, and I was thinking they're not even bracketing or pushing in or anything. You know, who are these guys just going through the motions of just firing mortars at us, but quite content on hitting the embankment in front of us, not really pushing any further. So they they're solely reliant, Mariupol, on artillery and air power and. Mortars to an extent, but mobile artillery, sows, and uh, you know, eventually you just get smashed so much that then they send in these poorly trained infantry guys uh, in numbers. And by the end of Mariupol, we were encircled. There were maybe thirty meters other side of walls. We could hear them talking. They'd taken up positions that we formerly held. We'd had uh, a battalion, uh, the five hundred first. Really surrender. They went down from six hundred people to one hundred and forty people, running out of ammunition, and you know it was all. And they were coming in through that gap where they surrendered. And it was just uh, the position became untenable, and we had no food, no water. Um, we were we were struggling to get logistics in, uh, and then we were running out of ammo. And that's when Zelensky called it around sort of eleventh, or my platoon commander called it. Uh, I wasn't aware of any of that that was going on outside of what was happening in Mariupol and just said, we're going to call it, we're going to try and get out. And unfortunately you didn't. I mean, let, let's turn to that, your capture. <laughs> and then of course the interrogation. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the bit which I'm, I, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tentative to try and sort of, you know, drill into that because of course there are some extremely unpleasant details, but did you get the impression that the Russians were interrogating you to get some kind of intelligence or out of simply going through the motions, cruelty, etc. Or are they trying to get some kind of propagandistic story that they can spin? What was your impression of the interrogation process? Well, I'd uh, when we called time, we got ambushed. Uh, I got two hours outside of Mariupol with an escape and evasion. Uh, it was nighttime, three in the morning when we went, and it was one of the Best days that I'd seen all year, you know, sunny. The day before it was foggy, perfect time to get out. And, um, 
you know, that day particularly, it was blue sky, sun was out, I was thinking the world's against us here, you know. Uh, but I felt confident I could make make it back. Because we got ambushed, the platoon got split up. Uh, I was looking at initially going 130 kilometres to a sister battalion who was fighting the Russians on the Azov, Azov Sea. Um, and it was always part of my planning before we left to eat a last meal. Uh, if we did get cornered, to try and find Russians to surrender, uh, we, 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 none of us wanted to be captured by the DPR. We thought it'd be better to be captured by the Russians. And then, um, and then really two hours outside Mariupol, I was trying to escape and evade, get back to uh, Zaporizhia, to friendly lines. Um, out of the whole brigade, uh, I know of 12 of our guys that made it, two of them women, medics, who got over 250 kilometres back to friendly lines, emaciated by the end of it. But I was captured, well, really, um, about two hours outside by the DPR, the next People's Republic, trying to trying to get back to friendly lines. Once the decision was made, we had to go. Uh, initially, on the capture, it wasn't too bad. Uh, I'd planned and said in my best Russian that I'm English, and I would repeat it in English, because during the capture, you know you're not going to get through a filter process because my Russian's okay, but I still talk with a Cockney accent. You know, they're going to pick me up straight away. And what also I had um, a lot of what we call Gucci gear, good gear on me, which most Ukrainians didn't have. So all, automatically that put me in, uh, oh, what, who are you? You know, I'd got a Garmin and a Buffalo fleece and lower boots. And, uh, you know, most Ukrainians can't afford all that stuff. Uh, cargo belts, really good um you know, MTPs, uh, sorry, Pixel, uh, that we bought, civilian Pixel. Um, and uh, so, so you know, I knew I wasn't going to get through the filter process, but I thought if I if I just say I'm English, I might get them on the back foot uh, because if they thought I was at Azov, they'd probably shoot me on the, the front line. And they, that's the historically what they did. First of all, they stripped me down looking for far-right tattoos, and then then they will shoot you in a, in a parking lot, you know, on, on the front line. So... I was keen to, a part of me understanding the culture helped me with making those decisions straight away, understanding what had gone on historically, living out there for so long, understanding that situation. And my only problem was uh, when I was captured, that I was captured by really young guys. I referred to in the book as in between us. You know, it, it was literally, they looked very bad. Uh, my pride took a bit of a battering, but um, yeah, you know, World War II helmets and uh, stripy T-shirts and... Uh, rigs that looked like they were from Toys R Us. Um, and my pet hate is, uh, you know, two wearing two sets of different types of camouflage, where these guys take it to a whole new level. You know, they've got like three or four, you know, hats one and trousers one and a jacket another. And and I was just thinking, man, I've just been caught by these guys. I'm never going to live this down. Um, but when I was captured, it wasn't too bad, but they handed me over to some Russians. Uh, how I know I know they were well. They were in full Russian fatigues. They didn't look like the guys that that captured me. They had different um, tape on. Uh, DPR had white tape on. These guys had different tape on, uh, red tape. Um, they had fast helmet. They had all the Gucci gear, uh, and they probably stabbed me in the leg. Uh, asked me a few basic questions about whether I was a MI6 or SAS. Do you speak Russian? I said, not really, no. Um, and uh, they weren't really interested. They didn't give me any tactical questioning is, 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 that was significant, other than they took me 40 minutes to what I refer to as a tiled floor room, which I'd been on enough security briefs in Bosnia and, and places that 
you know, somebody said to me once, if you find yourself in this house, the chances of you getting out are going to be pretty slim. So I'd had these these sorts of training with SEER in America. And, um, and so I was aware that the place I was in, you know, it was a tiled floor with a drainage hole. Um, you know, I got a quick look around. It was a, a bodged up office. There was no toilets or sinks or anything. It was just clearly a place where they beat the shit out of people. And, you know, it was easy to clean up the blood and the mess. So I knew exactly where I was. But before I'd even said a word, they put paddles onto my little fingers and uh, electrocuted me. Um, and then the questions started and the tactical questions were were really the same again. Your MI6, who are you? But they were initially looking at my social media profile. So there was a guy on a laptop constantly looking at my Facebook, Instagram, where I'd been, what I'd done, uh, who I talked to. Um, I didn't have my phone. I managed to ditch my phone before I was captured. So I didn't have to worry about that too much. Um, but I, you know, things I, I, I made some rookie mistakes, like left my wife's business card in, in a, a pouch in my wallet. And but I knew she was safe. Aiden, Aiden Aslid, another Brit that was captured with me, had sent me a post-it note saying, "Your wife's safe. She's got back in with my girlfriend. They've gone into Kiev, uh, towards Kiev." And uh, you know, he sent me a nice little message on the other side of it saying, "We're, you know, fucked basically," uh, with a nice little smiley emoji. So, so. Um, so I knew they were safe and that was quite a big reassurance. You know, I thanked him no end for that. Um, and so I knew she was safe, but the fact that she had my wife's email details and the work where she worked really did sort of upset me. And it was quite a rookie mistake. But, and another thing was that when I didn't have my phone and I sort of said, I don't have a phone, it was blown off me when I was hit by an IED, train IED, um, and it didn't work. You know, he promptly pulled out the battery charger I'd brought with me and went, so why do you have this battery charger dangling in front of me? And then I get another round of electric shocks. And, and I'm saying, look, I have to stick to my guns and just say, you know, I haven't got it blown off. Um, I don't have a phone, but, you know, I took my iPods with me for some reason. I don't know why, but I took them with me. Um, so so it was really obscure and the tactical questioning was very bad. Uh, other than the fact there was a guy in there who was probably FSB or some sort of intelligence who was doing all the the, the data collecting, uh, who told pretty much after I was electrocuted three or four times, um, showed me the video of me being electrocuted. So I knew that I know there's a video out there of, of uh, me draped to the Ukrainian flag being electrocuted. So he showed me that. Um, and he also showed me a video he sent to my, uh, a picture, he, sorry, a picture he sent to my parents with deceased. And he just said, you're dead on the internet with my past, copy of my passport. So, so they were already sort of going onto the social media saying, we've caught him, we've killed him, this sort of stuff, which I could understand uh, what was going on around me. They were saying that somebody else wanted me. Um, and I wasn't sure where, but I knew I was going to be moved on. So for me, the fact that I was on social media, you can look at two ways. I was quite happy that I was out there that people knew that, that even though they might think I'm dead, I'm out there. They know they've got me. So it starts with those small victories. Um, and then one of the cards alluded to the fact that we would get um, 10 people for you, you know, and our general back, which again was another indication quite early on, not long after I was captured, that they were looking to get a general back. So again, it's the small victories. And I started to build hope around that. Um, but it was a very bad, uh, I thought I was going to die. They did a mock execution. 
I thought, so, you know, if it's going to go, we're going to go now. Uh, but I thought providing that I'd, um, that I didn't die of a heart attack through the electric shocks, I knew I was going to be moved on. And, and that's when I got the, 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 went to the black site and then got some nice treatment, which is good cop, bad cop. And, and, uh, they'd stabbed me in the leg by then and, um, you know, I got a three inch knife wound in my leg. Just they didn't want me running anywhere, so they stabbed me in the leg. Um, you know, so I was in a really clip state, bad state when I got to the black site, and that's when I met uh, Mr. Balaclava, who was, uh, you know, told me that if you know I would find discomfort here, but you, I'd be okay, and you know, we'll give you a meal. And they put me in an isolation cell, which is like a one meter by three meter cell. Uh, with a camera on it, so the camera's on you full time. There's no window. Uh, you have a buzzer to put you to sleep and a buzzer to wake you up, maybe six, ten o'clock at night. And your door, you know, your food comes in initially when you get there um, through through the, an open door. Uh, it looked newly built cells. It, it smelt new, new paint. Um, so I was there maybe in an isolation cell for about forty eight hours and only asked to fill in an autobiography. Um, and when I, I'd left a bit about being an instructor with National Guard, um, they told me I wasn't going to eat anymore. Uh, maybe I'll get some bread. Um, and then for 50 days uh, in the black site, I was starved and uh, all I had was bread. So there's a good timeline of when I was captured that we've got now, that where I look reasonably okay when I'm captured, I've got hair. So when in June, you know, two, 50, 60 days later, I was now to down to 60 kilo, looking like I'd been in a Japanese war camp, which really that those pictures went global uh, because we weren't being fed uh, and nobody was being fed. So, so um, you know, the guy, the guy I was in the cell with when I did get out of isolation cell finally, um, there's two things. Uh, one, uh, I spoke to him. He he'd been in there 30 days longer than me. He looked like. So he was a guide, a guinea pig of what I could look like in 30 days. And he looked thin as how uh, white, how your skin goes like crepe paper, your, your, your nails go thin, you can feel a lump where the last bit of food you had was. And then after two or three months, it just goes so thin, you've got that lump you're constantly rubbing where you're thinking, that's the last meal I had. You know, um, you're not showered, you're not brushing teeth, you're not giving anything like that. So you've got that yeast and you're looking like really bad after two months, um, really struggling to keep your dignity. And, and it was only about two months later where I had a hair, you know, it's my first shower uh, in the prison, which I write about. Um, and about three weeks in, they cut off all my hair as well. So we have a good timeline of what I looked like before until till the trial. And I, by the time I got to the trial, I thought I was going to die of starvation long before I'd ever get exchanged because it was that that bad and that's extraordinary isn't it because you you start to get a sense that you may be of some value and that gives you some hope then of course they put you on um then then they threaten uh execution um and that made global global headlines and that was an extraordinary moment um where you realize that you know essentially you're dealing with with terrorists you have no concern for yeah. any human rights conventions whatsoever um but it sounds like they really pushed it to the edge now there's no strategic or tactical reason for doing that dare i say it, this just sounds like sort of blatant uh cruelty and uh and revenge yeah for sure i mean 
the situation I talk about on social media now is the systematic torture. You know, people going about war crimes. Um, war crimes go on on both sides. Unfortunately, it, it, it's the nature of war. There are some opportunist people that want to uh, get, enrich themselves from, from war. There are accidents that happen. But the difference between Russia uh, being just, you know, conducting you know, accidents and small amount of war crimes. It's the systematic torture driven from the highest levels of the Kremlin. You'll hear, I'm, my profile is large because I'm British, but there's quite a lot of me. There are lots of stories and even worse stories uh, about what happens, you know, to, to the captured prisoners. And you only have to see um, the the recent charade that, that, that Russia's just posted uh, prisoners of war and they've moved them to Rostov Don and given them 20 years in prison because what? They were part of National Guard and that's fighting in their own country, defending their own lands. Um, you know, and it's that, that, that when they look skeletal and there's 20 of them looking like they've not been fed, it's really worrying two years later whether any of them are alive. Um, so, so, and Russia doesn't allow any humanitarian aid groups or inspectors or into the prisons because of the systematic torture that people are under. And, and that's the difference between a war criminal like Putin and serious war crimes like ethnic cleansing and genocide. And that's the difference which I talk to people now. It, it's that systematic torture. Um, you know, I've just been and done a charity event with uh, John Sweeney. Uh, and one of the guys, there was uh, one of the women there was a photographer. And she takes um, pictures of, of the, the injured POWs that are exchanged or the civilians and the horror stories and the scars that, that these, these civilians and, and soldiers get. And, and, you know, they're quite happy to, to put the sign of the swastika in on someone's back or forehead or, you know, and that's what's going on. Uh, not to mention the rape and everything else uh, that, that's happening um, once they take over these areas. Um, so... You know, we try and talk about that now and raise the profile of that, that it is systematic. Um, and I'm one of quite a few now that have been captured, been tortured, uh, and it's, you hear the same equipment. That's not because people are, are copying each other. So many people, because it's systematic. It's because they're using the same equipment that their you know, colleagues in another department are using. Tapic phones, they jimmy-rig them in a basement and you can use them to electrocute people up. Then they're just normal field folks. Uh, Dylan, who was, who was captured with, was waterboarded, and every in some sort of contraption that when uh, he, he didn't give an answer that they wanted, the water level rose, and he couldn't get his head out. So until he was bubbling under, under, uh, underwater. We had another Ukrainian guy where they electrocuted, they put ball clips on his testicles. I mean, it, it's normal uh, to to Russians, and it's systematic, and it's it's that. That, that makes Putin, uh, that I agree with, he's a, an art, he should be dragged into the courts of the ICC because he, he's a wanted war criminal. Um, and, that, and that's the difference between, let's say, Ukraine or, uh, uh, you know, hit, hit in an area uh, uh, that, 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 you know, Russians are pulling back from, that they're, they're hiding in the civilian areas. So quite common, that's, that's quite a common thing. I would say that's that's both sides do that to a degree. When does uh, a school be not become a school? When all the people are out of it and the Russians are in it, you know, and the soldiers are in it. 
it, it's it's that, and then the Russians were then, but oh, they've just hit a school where your soldiers are in it, you know, and they were all dotted around. Around our prison in Makivka, the artillery, they were using the prison as a human human shield. So we could see from our prison windows all the dotted uh, artillery pieces. And we could hear the mortars firing from by the side of the prison. So, you know, and the rounds from Ukraine uh, were, were coming into the prison, which was really strange because they, then we realised it was like four kilometres away. Uh, and there were the, the rounds were coming in from, they must have been coming out of Adivka. So we realised then quite quickly that the Ukraine wasn't far away. But in those initial... Those initial time I was captured, I didn't even know there was a Ukraine until Paul Yuri came in uh, and spoke to us. So the information then um, comes in about where we stand and, and Paul Yuri sort of stuck his head over the wall. It took me about a week to really pluck up the courage to, to talk to Paul. And I said, you all right, mate, uh, how's it going? Uh, I hear you English. He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's that? And I said, Sean. He went, Sean, Sean Pinner. And I went, yeah. And he went, oh, I am fucked. And that was what he said when I first saw him. I, 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 he was like through a hole in the wall we could speak. And uh, he went, I've just seen you on the news. And I was quickly then saying, what did you see? What did you see? He said, your mum's talking on the news. So we start to develop these news, um, debriefing people, new prisoners that come in and getting this information uh, to try and give ourselves a picture. And over months and months and months, we started to get more confident, even after the trial. And we started to build that defence and start reminiscent of the Great Escape. You know, I was a big fan of those war films with my granddad when I was a kid. So, you know, we started to hatch these O groups and meetings where we would get information, collate information, work out what's going on in the in the world. Uh, and that's where really what the the crux of the book's about. After eight months of all that, you know, we still had the fight in us. You know, towards the very end, as much as we could, we weren't going to go down fighting even though they were telling us that we were going to be shot. And this systematic torture, the clear, there must be, you know, manuals, training, equipment. You're talking here about a certain level of standardisation for this torture infrastructure. In your view, does this give the lie to the idea that this is Putin's war, a war of the elite? Because, you know, if you have all this stuff going on, it's really the war of many tens and tens of thousands of people inflicting just the torture camps alone, and then you expand that out to the many hundreds of thousands who enable it, produce the equipment, supply it, work in administration. So what's what's your view on the broader culpability of the Russian people? Well, it's a difficult one. I mean, Putin's got a stranglehold on the media. Uh, RT were constantly in, interrogating us. We weren't given a choice. Russia Today, the media outlet. Uh, that shortly after I was electrocuted on the ears, they came in and I had a, a, an interview, made to do an interview with Roman Kazarov, the RT uh, presenter. Um, and we were able to ping them, ping those people when we got released. Um, but also, you know, various other RT people were coming in and they had access to an FSB MGB prison. I mean, Aidan Aslin was interviewed by Graham Phillips, a Brit. How has he got access to an FSB and MGB prison? Because he knows them all. And it's one of the most harshest watches you'll ever see uh, uh, if you're a journalist i mean that's that's how not to do it uh and for him to interview aiden hasn't it's one of the most uncomfortable views because he's been stabbed electrocuted beaten uh actually i don't know if he's electrocuted but he was stabbed and beaten um so so 
you know, the guy's scared and, and captured. It is in handcuffs being interviewed by Graham Phillips. That's what we had to deal with daily. Um, and my interviews and his interviews, we were used for propaganda quite early on. So going back to your point, Putin has a, a real grasp on the media. And also, you only have to see the standard of troops that he's using to fight against the troops that are actually there to control the masses. They are vastly more tactical equipment than even the guys going in on the front lines. So it shows you that Putin's fear is at home, not external. It, it's it's Moscow. And, uh, you know, and and I just wrote about it yesterday, about Pogorzhin's, I'm just reading a new book, actually, and Pogorzhin's, uh, Pogorzhin's um, coup. You know, he got quite far into to, to Russia. And, you know, there were people wanting to take pictures of him. And, you know, he, he'd basically gone... 200 kilometers into Russia to take out, take out Moscow. And nobody really it went unchallenged pretty much. Um, that still hasn't gone away. That's left a big crack. And as much as they try and paper over it, Putin tries to paper over it, over it it's still going on. You've got Igor Gherkin now wanting to run for uh, presidency. Now he's a, a culprit and one of the organizers of the two, 2014 separatist uprising in, in Ukraine. But He's in prison, but you can look at it two ways. He, he, he's, he probably understands Russian culture better than most. Um, and he's now probably seen a gap in the market because people are, if you read between the lines, are unhappy with the mobilization, the call ups. Um, you know, and, and Russia are struggling, sanctions are hitting because even when I was in, they were complaining about the price of food and cigarettes. It's all going up. There's a shortage of rubber. Um, you know, the aircraft industries at a standstill. So, so you know, Putin's, if we keep pushing, Putin's going to be really trying to deal with uh, the problems at home. He probably is now, but it's just the social media and uh, portray Putin as this sort of um, hero. He's was a year ahead of any, any of us, all NATO and European countries with that. Um, and he's got a fan base, the religious connection between, you know, Russia and America. Uh, which, which basically is the, against the, uh, you know, LG, LGBTQ rights and, and uh, um, you know, that they've got a link. So there is a, an affinity with what Russia's pumping out with some of the Bible belts of, you know, America and Trump land. You know, he's capitalising on that. Um, and most of my hate mail comes from Americans. And you can tell, by the way, they're, they're written, that they're, they're Americans writing it. Uh, and still to this day, we, you know, if I don't get a, a message coming saying we should have killed you when we had you in the next and um, using American colloquialism and, and uh, grammar. And you just think, my God, you know, there's a, there's a real problem with this. Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, it's. Russia, Russia is a difficult country uh, in, in respects to I mean, Ukraine was never going to conquer it. It, it, it was always an unjust war and, and a war to get, um, you know, the old Soviet Union Union back, which, which now, if you look at it, uh, looking out, looking inside, looking out, out looking in, you've now got uh, Russia with an extended NATO border. I mean, it's a massive, it's the, one of the biggest cock-ups, uh, foreign cock-ups in history. I mean, he's got, uh, he's increased NATO's border with Russia, is, is now a military economy. Um, 
they're going to be struggling. It's it's inflating GDP, and Russia are really struggling. Um, but they keep pushing that. They've got a big fan base on social media, and uh, and they keep pushing this. Everything's going to be okay, uh, but it's not. It's only we don't push this enough in the West. We don't talk about these uh, things on social media in the West, which is which is why um, since I've been released, we've now uh, myself and and Aiden and a few others. We're now quite vocal on social media. I never really dealt with social media much uh, while I was in. I was a soldier, really didn't push. I had 30 followers on Twitter. Now we've got 15,000 followers and we're pushing that. Hold on a minute. We live here. We can combat those Graham Phillips. We actually lived in Ukraine. This guy is just paid by Russia. You know, we actually lived in Mariupol. So now I talk about what it was actually like in Mariupol and Donbass, and who fueled it, and why the FSB has jailed all the ringleaders and anybody associated, killed and jailed, all of them that wanted a free republic uh, of the next people's republic, and against people's republic. So, you know, for me, it's about exposing those um, laws. It was always a Russian invasion. In 2014, Vice News did great episodes about showing Russians that Russian army that was in Ukraine. Um, it's always been a Russian invasion. And I was in prison with a former transport minister at the DPR, who I write about in the book, who wanted a republic, not under Russia, um, which is why you now have a lot of the, the leaders of that, that republic, that, that initially what some of them wanted, now in prison or, or, or dead. Uh, and Igor Gherkin being the last one of them, really, uh, who's now in an FSB prison. Mm. So, you know, it's just, we're able to, to to pump that message back out now because we're probably, myself, uh, it, it, I'm probably one of a handful of people that have lived in Donbass before the invasion who really understands what it's like in the culture. Uh, so I've sort of fallen into this area, like talking to you about what it was actually like in Mariupol, those false narratives that are being pumped out. It's nothing I planned, it's just, where I've ended up. And now we're actually taking Russia to court as well in the UK, trying to get a landmark case um, so that, that if we win, that that we were a, able to get money for people affected by the war in Ukraine, uh, but we've using money from Russian assets that we've seized. So if we, and that's, that's now. So, you know, I, I'd never would fight again. My military career is over. I still suffered from injuries from my capture, but my life's taken on a whole new meaning. Um, you know, uh, dealing, trying to make things right in Ukraine, trying to get back Mariupol, supporting with humanitarian aid, raising the profile and taking Russia to court and trying to get money for people affected by the war. I think it's very powerful. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been following um, what we've been saying there. There are other there are other guys like Mesa Gifford who are still like, on the front line, but also leveraging social media incredibly effectively to try and get the truth out there. And, that's why I've got so many Ukrainians on this channel. It seems to me that having these first-hand stories, people who are actually there saying, this is the Russian lie, and this is the truth, and I've seen it and experienced it, I think that is so important to get across, especially the period now where we, we started the interview talking about the, the dearth of uh, stories about Ukraine, in-depth stories about Ukraine on the, the main media. The, the kind of area I wanted to end up, though, with, 
as I always try to end on talking about Ukraine, because Russia takes up all the oxygen, you know, and, and yeah, it's especially true. it's it's so traumatized and attention seeking. Um, yeah. You've written very eloquently about the differences between Ukraine and Russia. So could you, you know, we've heard a lot about uh, the, the Russian cruelty the, as you've experienced it. Um, in your view, what are the characteristics of Ukraine and Ukrainians that have enabled them to resist this huge scale invasion um, and retain their language, identity, and of course, this fierceness with which they are protecting their land and culture. What What's your impression of Ukrainians and why is it so important for them to not just persevere, but be victorious? Well, it comes to a, a number of uh number of explanations really uh we've got to look at it prior to the invasion um you know the wearing of the vishifanka shirts was quite a one i noticed when i came back really when i was in ukraine before um the invasion they were brought out on special occasions and uh you know people were proud to wear them and you quite occasionally see them in the street post invasion now everybody's wearing them I mean, they're everywhere, beautiful shirts, embroidered shirts, and people wear them to work. And you go down the street and there's lots of T-shirts saying, you know, F Russia and, you know, hoodies around with uh, Get Lost Putin. And, you know, and people have come out in the shadows of, of Russia since the invasion. So that's probably a good thing I've seen. Uh, and the language says a resurgence. There isn't um, discrimination in Ukraine. I live in Dnipro. We speak Russian and also I'm a Brit. So if I can only speak Russian, generally we speak Russian. There isn't discrimination that I've seen anywhere um, in Ukraine that discriminates uh, Russian speakers. Um, and, and our president's a Russian speaker. So he speaks Russian. So, you know, it, it's um, that's the, the re-emergence of the Ukrainian language. Is I don't like speaking Russian now. And a lot of people don't like speaking. There's a difference. It's You're not persecuted, but... People now want to learn Ukrainian. If we talk Ukrainian, then I'm trying to pick up Ukrainian. That's not because there's discrimination in Russians. That's because, because uh, we want to talk Ukrainian now because of what Russia's done. So there's a big wedge that Russia's, by invading, has caused now between its neighbour. Uh, and that's permanent. That's never going to go. Because you only have to walk around Kiev and Dnipro and Lviv and you see the hatred for Russia. Absolute hatred. That somebody could do this um but you know in ukraine it's beautiful at the moment we've got snow and even the winter's beautiful here we've got snow in the last couple of days um you know it gets to minus 30 uh, in the trench lines I, I go out there every day and still think about my time and my four tours and what it's like to work in the trenches when it's cold wet freezing and my heart still goes out to the the troops while there's a will to fight i think uh, i don't see any change in that uh, not in the cities, essentially, but, um, yeah, there's still, you know, the will to fight and the hatred for what Russia's done. It, it, there's quite a misconception that uh, people are tired. There's difference. We've been fighting for nearly two years. So people are tired and fed up with it. But most of that is taken up with anger. But I don't see any deterioration in the will to fight. People still want to. Um, you know, you see a lot of misinformation on social media saying, oh, Ukraine's this, and Ukraine's that, and Ukraine's just hiring women out, plugging them into the gaps. No, a lot of the women feel an obligation to 
defend their homelands in their country. Um, but I certainly don't see uh, a decline in the will to fight. Um, on the contrary, people are still angry, want to fight. Um, you know, we don't have enough ammunition. Uh, that's pretty much, we need more ammunition and more help from the West. Uh, we got F-16s on the way. I think Germany's just uh, decided it wants to send us uh, Leopard 1s, which is great. And people went, well, oh, Leopard 1s is crap. And I'm like, well, you know, Russia using T-54s, 55s. I was going to so, say, yeah, against T-55s, that's not so bad, is it? <laughs> yeah, beggars can't be choosers. Um, you know, so it has a purpose. And, you know, I think it's Germany and, you know, Germany's uh, and America. Brits, Britain's just been over this week and... You know, the support's there. Um, the, the the weapons need to get in quicker and faster uh, because, you know, we, we want the guys to be able to do the job. If we didn't have F-16 six months or the early summer, then you could be looking at a different counteroffensive. And, you know, America's spending 5% of its budget. One of the misconceptions of, um, you know, that they're spending billions. They are, but it is only 5% of the defence budget of America that's taking out their adversary. Um, and to to comment a, a politician, that sounds a great deal because they're going to take over Europe. Uh, you know, they're going to move into and build relationships with South America and Cuba and places like that. And then, you know, if you don't stop them here, they're just going to move even closer to America. What are you going to do? Wait till they get on the doorstep before you start, you know, defending defending America. So it's vital America still has a part to play in, in Ukraine. And Ukraine are very thankful for the support of the world. I mean, they, you know, they're constantly telling people. I mean, Zelensky got persecuted recently for not doing enough politically to say thank you. But generally, you speak, you see on social media, and uh, uh, you go on there and you look at what Ukraine is, but they're forever grateful. Most of them are, are now working in Europe uh, and coming back to Ukraine because they feel safer that the, the military is doing a good job. Um, and you can go to parts of Ukraine that are really uh, not affected by the war. Like I've just been to the outskirts. I went to the mountains, uh, Carpathians, quite recently, where you wouldn't even know there was a war on. Beautiful. It looks like Austria and, and amazing scenery. And so, you know, um, you can go to places to relax. But, you know, my heart is still trying to support the guys on the front lines, my old unit, uh, new units with equipment, cold weather gear. Uh, my wife's a humanitarian, so she deals with the res refugees. So we still have an active part in, in that uh, and keeping the profile going. But Ukraine's just such a beautiful country with beautiful people. It's nothing like um, Russia portrays it. And, and also, most of the decisions about Ukraine are made by people that have never even been to Ukraine or Russia. And again, living in other places like America and, uh, you know, uh, who's, who just really sympathises to the Russian cause and just really reposting trash, Kremlin trash uh, about Ukraine. So, you know, it is it it is my... I wasn't born here. Uh, you could say I was made here, but I'm 50 years old, so I, I don't know how to get away with that. But, um, but, yeah, I certainly fell in love with the country. I didn't really have a... Um, uh, a real understanding for it, if I'm truly honest, in 2018, I, I did love that. I loved being here and, and I didn't go home for five years, but then I just fell in love with the culture. Uh, it's a good family ethos in, in Ukraine, which I fell in love with. You can park at the beach and it's not going to cost you 10, 20 pounds a, a day. 
you've got still got your supermarkets, your grocers, your butchers, your local produce salesmen, as well as your supermarkets. There isn't a speed camera at every junction. There's a lot of freedoms in Ukraine that we're fighting for. Um, you can fish. There's no rod licenses, no bailiffs, you know. Um, you know, things are cheaper. It's like £1.50 for steak and 30 50p for a beer. Um, it's a lot you know, the culture is different. It's, uh, you know, you work to live, not live to work. Um, so so I fell in love with that when I got here. Uh, and I love the, the, we get the seasons. We get spring, summer, autumn, winter, and it gets bloody cold in the winter, which, and then I have a celebration day when I take my thermals off in March, you know. Um, so, so, and then we get the first shots of spring, which is nothing better than spring and summer in Ukraine. It's beautiful. Uh, so, you ask me why people are defending that. They're defending their cultures, their home, uh, because they know if Russia come in, they would just move them to other parts of Russia. Ukraine would be er eradicated, um, and, and they won't. They won't cease to exist. You won't be allowed to speak Ukrainian. You'll have to speak Russian. And basically, we've seen that before in the you know in the Second World War. How that turned out is when you try and do that. So, you know this. It makes me laugh when I hear that Ukraine, you know, with denazifying Ukraine, when the ferry people coming in are actually, you know, of that that Nazi ilk uh, and have a bigger problem with far right and, you know, Rushish and all the other parliamentaries, far right parliamentaries coming into Ukraine. And my common phrase is, what, you denazify in Ukraine with even more Nazis? Jeez. You know, I've never seen it. Most armies have an element. You know who they are. You don't really talk to them unless you're that sort of ilk. Um they're everywhere in every culture. There is an extremist uh, in every country, but it's nothing like Russia. Russia says it is. It, it's far, so far from the truth. Um, and we've got a Jewish president and a, a Muslim defense minister. So you know, come on, you know, it's like some of the biggest Jewish communities outside of Israel and America live in Ukraine, uh, Dnipro and Odessa and places like that. So you know, it's very far from. And the truth everyone's mucking into the war effort here and and that is something to behold you and know without persecution without threat i mean this the irony yeah. is the safest place to be a jew right now is probably ukraine yeah for sure because uh, obviously you know russia's allegiance is embracing hamas which hamas wants to really eradicate the jewish nation and israel from palestine so so, yeah, where do you go with that? Uh, there's a lot of reports of uh, marginalisation of, of ethnic cultures and uh, and trying to get uh, the ethnic cultures in Russia uh, recruited. You know, there's plenty of video footage of them now going trying to press gang people into service because it, it's uh, nobody's going to, they're not going to hear blowbacks from that. It's easier to get those people in and, and start serving. And what Russia are very clever at is they're taking people from the outskirts. You know, they won't touch people from Moscow. So it's the Moscow elites. It makes me laugh when I hear Americans call America the, the deep state because, you you know, at least we have a democracy. At least you can vote in people. At least you can um, do things that you want to do and not be told that you have to do this. Uh, uh, in Russia, they don't have that liberty. You know, you're told what your place is, where, you know, and so they take people from the outskirts. Moscow is its own little country inside Russia where it doesn't want to take uh, people and recruit people from for this war effort in Ukraine. So, you know, a lot of the extremities of Russia are really struggling um, and to deal with the deaths. Uh, 300,000 Russians have lost their lives. They're not paying into the economy anymore. Um, there's a real brain drain in Russia. So, 
again, uh, you know, I think it affects Russia a lot more being a bigger country. They need this workforce. They need these people. So the longer it goes on, I think, uh, you know, Russia are going to suffer with that, uh, that, that side of it. But Ukraine, now people are starting to come back. Like I said, the trains are actually full coming back. You have to book like 19 days in advance to get a ticket into Ukraine. Otherwise, you won't get a seat. So it's good to see that uh, people are coming back and they're willing to risk, um, you know, war and rockets for their country. Um, you know, and, you know, BBC, are, from my opinion, are like so late on doing a documentary about the people avoiding the draft in Ukraine. You're going to get that anyway. You're going to get people trying to get out and, and don't want to fight. And you're going to get that. Uh, but, you know, the BBC are like two years too late on that. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's very bad, bad timing and a bad, really, report. Uh, again, a representative of... You know, putting it in a broader context, uh, where Ukraine has also been announced as the second highest country in the world for charitable donations. It's like, well, which angle, which story are you going to take? And you know, they they go for the uh, the most negative one, the most uh, you know. You can see Absolutely. how the cogs are working there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conflict. Journalism, yeah. you know, breeds conflict and, uh, you know, conflict sells. Uh, but I mean, the BBC is just ridiculous with their reporting at the moment, in my view. Uh, not because I'm anti-BBC, but just, you know, bringing out a documentary about what people avoiding the Ukrainian draft. You're going to get that anyway. And there isn't a, a great deal of, uh, they said something like 20,000 people have avoided the, the, the trying to get out and avoid the draft. You're going to get that anyway. Russia's having a bigger problem with the brain drain. Why didn't they report on Russia and the brain drain? You mean the one million people who fled? Yeah, a slightly different scale. Just, of, uh, yeah. yeah, and it creates an image that Ukraine's having. And that's the, the BBC's doing that on many levels and many conflicts at the moment. It's tiring. It's just shocking. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's been a call to actually... Um, they're, they're trying to make a, an inquiry into this, this reporting by the BBC that seems to be one-sided. Um, and and I don't know, it's not just them. There's a lot of social media um, platforms reporting because of something like the BBC does. So they put a story about, about Ukraine uh, and the people trying to escape the, the draft, and it goes on to different social media platforms and gets spun out everywhere. Oh, there's a problem in Ukraine. It's not really reflective of the situation and what you, where Ukraine is now. Uh, it's got other issues, really. Uh, not that. Um, and then the Russians pick up on it. They'll pick up on anything and then pump it out. Uh, of course, leverage it and, uh, yeah. and weaponize it. Well, that's why I'm so grateful that uh, the, the, the people like you are so active on social media to, to counter that messaging. Uh, Russian lies won't go away. Uh, you have to meet lie for lie uh, with with a truthful account of what's going on. Um You've been incredibly generous with your your insights and stories, Sean, and of course with your time. I know the audience are going to be fantastically grateful uh, for everything that you've shared with us and everything you're doing as well. So we'll put a link to your book. We'll put a link to your social media profiles. I strongly encourage people to follow those. And if there are any links to your you know former battalion or any fundraisers, we'll get them in there. They will of course be on your social profile. So I encourage people to really to get involved and you know support individuals who can guarantee that that money is going to a worthwhile cause and 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 where you know you know the individuals are still in the trenches i think that's yeah that's a big important. thing we talk about at the moment to be fair 
we talk about you wouldn't do it at home. Don't give it to people you don't know where the money's going. Uh, we try and put put that money at ground level. It's, a, it's that's another topic. To be fair, that's, that's a whole other kind of worms. There, a whole other thing. Yeah, we can we but can share you. validated links and so on, and people can yeah. follow you and and know that there's a good chance it's going to make a a huge difference. Sean, thank you so much. I mean really hope you know we we get to do this again and i hope we we get to meet as well i'm planning on doing more events uh in ukraine next year so hopefully we'll get that opportunity my pleasure thank you thank you so much